0: The conversation around diversity is one that's become integral in our everyday working lives. And as more computational decisions are made by AI, we need to make sure we're aware and committed to considering bias and how that translates to the software we're creating. From VSA Partners, this is AI Plus Design, a podcast about the merging relationship of artificial intelligence and design. I'm Scott Tyson, Interaction Design Lead at VSA Partners. Today I'm sitting down with Jeff Nelson to talk bias in AI. Jeff is the CEO of Synchapi, a data platform powered by machine learning. He's also the chief technology officer of Blavity, a media platform created for black millennials. Welcome, Jeff. We're excited to hear your take on this topic.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to dig in. So let's get started.
0: All right. So, Jeff, tell us, why does dealing with bias even matter? And why should we even make this a priority?
1: Well... So technology is evolving rapidly and it is becoming essential to our daily lives. And what's really interesting is that if you look at what surrounds us in terms of devices and services, they are more intelligent than they've ever been. And so we're moving into a world where AI and machine learning are so prominent in the devices that we use and cherish every day. And so we have to tackle bias there because If we build these devices and these services and these machines with bias within them, then it's only going to reinforce that bias. Um, I think about my children. So I have a son who's 10 and all he's ever known is technology. And I also have a daughter that's three, right? So these children come into the world as blank slates and we teach them. And if they're using devices that just reinforce biases that have existed for years and years and, and generations, then we're never going to get out of that cycle. So we've got to uh, tackle it um, in general, but specifically uh, from the technology standpoint, because technology is going to be the teacher. It's going to be the reinforcer mm-hmm. uh, in the future more so than humans are. And that's that's potentially exciting, uh, but it could be scary if we don't do it in, in the right way.
0: Yeah. You know, in fact, I just saw a bit about Alexa – having a, I forget what they called it, a parent mode mm. that requires a child to be polite when it asks Alexa something. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And, and politeness is cultural, right? Um, you know, whenever, <clears throat> when I, when, whenever I hear about these cool things, um, su- such as that mode in Alexa, Alexa or any other tool or service that tries to enforce some value, the question is always, well, whose value is it? Where does mm-hmm. that value come from? Is right. it a globally shared value? It could be globally shared, but does the execution or the manifestation of that value differ from culture to culture? So that, that's interesting. Totally. I, I didn't. Know, I have
0: Alexa. I didn't know about that mode. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, yeah, with that. Yeah, uh, yeah, Interesting. There's interesting. been some examples of, of bias issues in the last few years. Maybe we could talk about a few of those. I, I'm not sure everyone gets the depth and, and – uh, how pervasive mm-hmm. some of the AI bias is in in our lives.
1: Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. Um, there are so many different examples. Um, just I can think from a couple that I've had in the last couple of days, right? Um, I, I was on Facebook this morning and I noticed one of the things that Facebook has now is they will auto-generate subtitles for videos. And when you are doing sort of Speech to text, mm-hmm. that's a machine learning process that transcription. Uh, but if you don't build that model with diverse voices, then you get people that are creating videos. And you can't you can't transcribe them. You can't automatically generate those subtitles, hmm. right? So that's that's one area I was looking at uh, uh, going through some videos, and I noticed, I noticed some yeah have those subtitles, others didn't. And there were differences in the people in the videos and in in how we would think we could traditionally understand those people based on how they're speaking, their dialect, their accent. Um, Other things when you go, this is one of my favorite favorites because I deal with it like every day when you go to a public restroom and they have the automated soap dispenser and the automated uh, water dispenser. I can never get those things to work. Right. Because my skin complexion being an African-American you know, is, is darker than the models that they trained that on. And I can never get it to work. I, I put my hand under the water uh, faucet, then the soap comes out. I put it under uh, the soap dispenser, the water comes out. can never get it to work. And that happens in so many different places. Hmm. Uh, there are a bunch of other examples um, that, you know, if you think those are trivial, um, there are some bigger examples where... Areas where this is being used in law enforcement. People want to talk about machine learning and right. AI for, for law enforcement, and there are there's a ton of conversation now in general just about the different experiences that uh, different groups of people have with law enforcement in general, without even yeah. bringing a machine that uh, may have bias into play. And so, if you think about that, and you see examples where uh, some law enforcement agencies want to use machine learning to uh, predict, you know, who's going to be an offender, mm-hmm. right? Who's going to going to commit a crime or right. something like that? Uh, those are potentially really, really scary. Yeah. Because we we as humans tend to think that if a machine says something is right, it's right, right? We we accept that humans are fallible and prone to error. But we don't believe that about machines for some reason, even yeah. though machines are always buggy.
0: Right. And so
1: that's potentially very scary when you get to that level.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's minority report again, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's actually happening. ProPublica did a bit about about predictive criminal behavior, mm-hmm. and it seems like it's always wrong. And mm-hmm. it not only it sounds like it's also reinforcing the bias of whoever generated the, the algorithms Absolutely. in the first place.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: I guess people don't fully... Get how much AI has already been embedded in these devices, like mm-hmm. you said, or who gets to decide <laughs> that this is going to happen in our courts and our criminal justice system? Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on like how we address this?
1: Well, addressing this problem has to be multifaceted, and it's not just a technical solution. It, it there are there's certainly a technical component to it, and and since Chappie's doing a lot of work in terms of trying to build our technology in a way that, that that doesn't assume that bias doesn't exist because there's always going to be bias, right The question isn't so much how do you prevent bias from happening? It, the question is how do you make systems that are able to accept that bias is a reality and, and enter a mode where someone can override that bias and expand the machine's model of making decisions? And so that's the challenge from a technical point, a standpoint, but in addition to that, you've also gotta tackle this problem from a personnel standpoint and from a process standpoint. Uh-huh. When I think about the, you know, we, we talk about diversity in technology and in startups and tech companies, and that's a really big issue, and, and it's a big issue from a, re- a representation standpoint uh, and optical standpoint, but it's also a big issue because when people solve problems they solve them in 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 a way that seems to be a solution for the people in the room and the people at the table and if you don't if you have bias at the table if bias is all that's in the room right. then the solution is going to be bias and it's going to be bias in favor of a limited group and it's going to be biased against a much larger group So you want to tackle this both technically and, and, you know, from a personnel and process standpoint. Right. And so uh, I'm personally passionate about all those and, and, you know um – and, and, and we're, I think we're going to talk about a lot of those in, in, in depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but in general, I think that's the way you've got to frame the conversation is how do we tackle this from, from multiple facets and not just think, well, you know, okay, there's bias in technology, so let's just check this box and the bias is gone. No, it's it's more complica- more complex than that.
0: No, it makes me think of like civics class and, and thinking about the foundation of even, you know, the United States where mm-hmm. and even before that where we've decided that, A jury of our peers Mm -hmm. is the most important way to like have right to pass on judgment why don't we why aren't we thinking about that and building that into the process that's such a great that's
1: such a great analogy Um, you know it, it would just be very scary if one person, one one judge uh, got to decide, you know, whether, you know, uh, if, if one judge was the finder of the verdict, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that would be potentially very scary and could have some bad outcomes. Now, having a jury of your peers doesn't preclude bad, bad outcomes from having, uh, happening, sure. but it does give us some assurance that, hey, at least people that, come from the same place as me that have similar life experiences that may look like me that may understand where mm-hmm. I've been can come to a, a more fair conclusion. And so, yep. yeah, that's a great analogy.
0: Um, how about, we've talked about how you address it at Sinchapi? maybe. Mm-hmm. Like the teams you build, yeah. the the hiring you do, and even the processes of during the creation of mm-hmm. the, the work you've been doing.
1: Right, absolutely. So... Uh, just to, to start there on the hiring process, because I think that's where it begins. And at St. Chappie and even at uh, for my teams at Blavity, well, I, I as a hiring manager approach the process differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've interviewed to hire people at every company I've ever been at. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is very common about the hiring process is you look for people to reaffirm what already exists. So you ask questions and you want people to get the right answer, right? Which is reaffirming what you view the right answer to be, right? Um, And sometimes there's an objectively uh, correct answer. And sometimes there are questions where you're looking for people to think a certain way. And you want to reaffirm uh, people's ability to assimilate into a culture that Mm -hmm. already exists. Mm -hmm. And I actually approach interviews differently. Uh, I don't think I have in an interview asked more than three technical questions since since I've been building my own companies and hiring people. Hmm. Um, I approach interviews as an opportunity to have a conversation. And the way I evaluate someone that I'm interviewing is based on what I learn, not whether... I came in with a preconceived notion of this is – these are the right answers, and I want to see if this person – how many did they get right? I walk away and assess it. Hey, did I learn anything from this person? Mm. Did this person expand my way of thinking? Did this person challenge some of my assumptions? To me, the sign of a good interview, right, and and therefore a a hire that's going to improve your company is not one where you walk away and say, yeah, everything they said, I I agree with that. They affirmed everything that I think. You walk away and you feel challenged. You feel intrigued. You feel as though that this person really pushed you. Mm -hmm. And so when you do that, automatically you're saying up front, you are not only willing to accept, but you're intentionally embracing people that are going to come in and challenge the way you see the world, right. and that's really important. And it's a challenge um, for founders and especially in young companies when you have a vision, mm-hmm. and and. A lot of times, that vision is something that is brand new and has never been done before. So, by definition, everything challenges that vision. And as a founder, there's enough friction to your vision being challenged. And so, founders are skeptical to to say, "Well, if people come on board and they challenge this, well, that's that's I want to avoid that. I need people that are going to see the world, the this new future." that doesn't exist and I need them to get on board with that. And that's true. You do want that to happen but you also need people to expand that vision, to refine it and and to to harden it into something uh, that's actually going to be executable and successful and scalable. Right. And so it, it's not easy, right? And it's hiring has never been easy no matter how you approach it but I've always taken uh, that view that I want people that are going to teach me and are going to challenge me that I'm going to learn from. And so that... What I've—it's been my experience that when you do that, you tend to get uh, a a what I think is is just a better looking picture of your team. Mm-hmm. Better looking in the sense that it's more colorful. It is more, uh, it's more gender balanced. It is balanced in ableism and age and backgrounds and religion, all those things, because you don't look for someone that thinks like me and that looks like me.
0: Right. So it's kind of like looking for that square peg for the round hole mm-hmm. in a sense, whereas you could see if there was some AI even pre-screening software that you have to teach it mm-hmm. to this kind of person, these kind of skills, it's going to just continue to look and refine for that, that right. limited set right? Except when you're doing it, you're keeping in mind different. Let's embrace different right away, mm-hmm. right?
1: And one of the things that when we talk about AI and machine learning, I always like to level set on what that even means because yeah. it's, it's become one of those terms that everyone uses mm-hmm. and, it, and it means nothing, right? And so AI and machine learning quite simply is a computational model for decision making in machines, that's what it is. It's a, it's a. You're, you're, you're giving a machine instructions for making decisions given arbitrary input. Yeah, and it's similar to deductive reasoning in humans, right? The way we, uh, the, the way that we learn when we're um, growing up and, and we're developing, we learn to uh, take certain inputs and use previous experience to make a decision about a future action. Yeah. And that's what machine learning is. And and if you give as input a model that's based on a way of thinking that's limited, that's rigid, that's biased, mm-hmm. then – you're going to get those same outcomes. What humans also have, humans have the, have inductive reasoning, right? We have the ability to infer. We have the ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. And that's what's hard to simulate in machines, right? Because machines, are, are, machines follow instructions. And the benefit of machines is that they follow instructions much more efficiently, uh, much more quickly, and in a manner that scales better than humans can. Mm. But humans have the ability to infer, to, uh, to adapt, to have empathy. And so that's hard to put into a machine. So you want to build you want to build into these machines the ability to accept that feedback from humans in in a way that makes sense, and then incorporate that into that decision making model going forward.
0: Uh, last time we talked, we talked a little bit about code switching. Mm-hmm. Can we can we dive into that a little bit more? I know you've got some pretty strong feelings about that. Maybe we could explain what it is. Yeah.
1: So just going back to you know what we were saying about hiring. Um, and, and you you want, I, I believe you want to have people that challenge your way of thinking. Code switching for, you know, listeners that might not be aware is this, I, I use the term phenomenon because whenever I tell people about this uh, <laughs> that don't code switch, they're like, whoa, "Whoa, what? What do you mean? Yeah. But code switching is simply when a person gets into an environment or around a group of, a group of people yeah. and they... It, it's implicit. Uh, it's it's there's awareness of it, but it sort of happens automatically. Mm-hmm. Where you change the way you speak, you change the expressions you use, you change the way uh, you uh, your your posture. You 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 present yourself in a way that you feel that others around you in that situation are going to be familiar with and therefore comfortable with expectations right? of behavior and things exactly like that. right. And so, for me as an African American, um, I can tell you that there are the way that I talk to. Uh, my friends is different than I'm talking on this podcast or that sure. I talk to uh, my investors. Right. And it's not so much just like, well, yeah, those are friends versus in business settings. No, there are different words I use. The, the inflection of my voice is different. Mm-hmm. My accent is different. Right. And it's not, again, it's not an intentional thing where I'm saying, well, I'm going to be fake here. Or I'm going to be real here. It's something where you feel as though there's a certain expectation of you. And so you have to switch. To, in order to be authentic to these different crowds. And so for me, code switching is automatically, uh, by definition, a, a, a symptom of having a broken culture. Because people feel that the authentic version of themselves mm-hmm. that is appropriate for this place is different mm-hmm. than it is in some other place. Or it's not true to who they really are. Right, And so I think one of the practical ways that I measure and the teams that I build, whether we're truly not only meeting diversity uh, in terms of the exterior appearance of it, in terms of, well, do we have you know, this group represented or this group, uh, but are we meeting it internally? Do people feel that they have to code switch? Do people feel that they can come to work and have the same interests, thoughts, mm-hmm. ideas, mm-hmm. ways of speaking that they would when they are at home talking to their friends or their partner or whatever the case may be. Yeah, And so um, I think code switching is such a phenomenal thing because people that do code switch, it's sort of like, hey, that's everyday life. I mean, yeah, that's like, yeah, code switching is a thing. People that don't code switch or don't have to, they're like, what? What do you mean? What like, what do you mean that you speak differently here versus here versus here? Yeah. So it's pretty fascinating. Yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah. I mean, even I keep going back to the Alexa example. Mm-hmm. Would you ever be formal with Alexa versus casual with Alexa in a different scenario? You know what I mean?
1: That, that, that's an interesting question. One of, the, one of the things that strikes me about Alexa and Siri and all these assistants is that I think – all of them are women, all of them. Hmm. And when, when you talk about bias, it just reinforces this idea that an assistant, someone that helps, someone that serves is a woman. Right. And of course, tech companies justify this. They say, well, we've done research and we found that uh, a, a female voice softer was more appealing to our users and it made them more comfortable it's like yeah because who'd you talk to did you talk to all men right yeah. like, <laughs> even if you did talk to a, a diverse uh, group of people is the is there this this notion that's so ingrained in our culture that women are subservient women are the assistants women are the ones that serve mm-hmm. and is it our responsibility to challenge that. Now, yes, you can have Siri have a male voice. Yeah, sure, you right. can. You can have. Uh, I think Siri from my wife has a British accent, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can sort of change and configure those things. But um, what people are confronted with when they first use these devices, when they first, uh, when they see the marketing around these devices it's it, it's that image and so to your question about you know can you know would you be formal when talking to Alexa I think the entire value prop of that thing is that I can I can say, hey Alexa it's not like good morning Alexa how's it you know yeah, yeah. don't ask about Alexa's day it's like Alexa get get me this or yeah. tell me this right or hey, literally hey Siri right? right and hopefully no one's phones like light up because Siri's gonna try to process a request yeah but but yeah it's I don't think people think about those things of, you know, how do we speak to these devices and the way that the, the personification of the device, what does that reinforce or introduce about our perception of others who may also appear or sound like that device? You yeah. know? So, so fascinating, fascinating thing there.
0: It is. It is. I mean, so I guess the million-dollar question is how do we go about changing all this how do we infuse this into the things we make mm-hmm. like awareness is one thing but as designers and product developers is this a sprint we put into our feature you mm-hmm. know presentation and we make we plan ahead is it is it in the beginning about how we build our teams and the objectives we set for with with products what are your thoughts there so so we talked
1: a little bit about the team building mm-hmm. and hiring and having diverse inputs having diverse people at the table yep. uh, from a technical standpoint. I think the biggest thing people can do is assume that your product can be wrong. And mm-hmm. most, people, most people don't assume that. Mm-hmm. And not wrong in the sense that it can have bugs, but if you're building an intelligent system and the purpose of that intelligent system is to make a decision or answer a question or give a response, you have to build in from the beginning, by design, the assumption that your system can be wrong. And when you do that, you force yourself to build in this mechanism for the system being corrected. And from a design standpoint, the challenge becomes, how do you make, the, make that feedback process implicit, make it natural, uh, subtle, but you encourage your users to do it? And that is, I think, what's, what's going to separate the companies that are going to be successful in this arena versus those that are not going to be successful is, is how you do that. It's in Chappie, you know, one of the things we do, um, we have a, a data platform that uses machine learning in a number of ways. But one of the ways is that uh, we, we essentially give you a natural language interface for discovering data. Yeah. So you can ask questions about your business. You can ask questions about anything, mm-hmm. any any sort of questions and any jargon um, and our system processes that and turns it into a data request. Now, from the beginning, when we built this system, you know, if you let's say that you're in sales and marketing and you want to say, uh, who's my best performing sales rep? Yeah. Um, most people, and, and, and I say most uh, because I mean most from from what I've seen, a lot of people are going to approach that problem and say, well, we, we need to deliver an answer. Right. So we're going to build a system that's smart enough to figure that out for you. Sinchapi, we don't take that approach. At Synchappy, we think that the purpose of our platform and our machines is to sift through a bunch of stuff and give you the context as a human to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Right. So the machine is making a, a, a decision about what's relevant for you to make a decision. But we don't make the decision for you. So when you ask a question, we don't give answers. We give you context that's relevant. And we, we, and we present that relevant context and that relevant data in a way that's easy for you to consume and make a decision that the answer exists or the answer doesn't exist here. I need, I need to look somewhere else. I need to ask additional questions. Okay. And so by design, from the beginning, we, we built a system that doesn't try to give answers. Therefore, we don't have this burden of correctness, right, right? We still can be wrong, but we don't have the burden of we have to give the right answer. For us, the challenge is, are we giving the right context and guiding people to, 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 to create the answer or discover the answer in the appropriate way? In addition to that, uh, we built in mechanisms in our platform for people to give us feedback. Um, and we do that in a number of ways, uh, some which are explicit and some of which are implicit. Um, and, and some of the ways we do that is our secret sauce so I'm not gonna uh, yeah. go, go, <laughs> go too, too much far. into the, into the specifics. but I think the larger point is as a designer, a product designer um, or a technical architect, whatever your role may be when you're building these products, you want to you want to build them under the assumption that, Humans give feedback in explicit and implicit ways, and you want to build technology in a way that it's going to catch those subtle feedback cues and incorporate it into its decision-making model. Mm. And I think it's important to go that route because you don't want to just put put a big box and and, and force a human to say, hey, am I wrong? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. That's kind of, you know, that's obtrusive and it's kind of scary. It puts a lot of pressure on, on the user. But even if you think about natural interactions that humans have, people that uh, sort of uh, um, study body language, there are subtle cues we give off in our body language when we're interacting with people mm-hmm. or you can tell, hey, I'm uncomfortable or I'm interested or I'm disinterested. And people that are really adept at seeing those things pick up on that and, and they pick up on those cues. The same way that we as humans in social situations do that and we we therefore um, have this ability to to under, have a better understanding about what we did and what how our actions were received, right. you've you got, got to build to that, that in software, software, some, some, software somehow. And it's, it's challenging. Really it's very, very hard. And, and that's why, why I love to be in this space because that's what makes us different. And, and when I talk to customers and uh, investors and everyone about the tools that we're, we're building, it's not just about data. It's not just about machine learning. It's about building a system that picks up on the subtle cues that your users give you and and uses that implicit feedback to improve the experience for our users and the results that we're giving
0: them. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, we've had conversations with some of our clients and the desire is to produce a piece of software a product that synthesizes some of that data for the user mm-hmm. and that's where you get into trouble right and you so you're taking the opposite approach by presenting content mm-hmm. in a context without judgment essentially exactly. right
1: mm-hmm. and, and and that's and i always make that clear up front is, is we say, you can ask questions, but we're not going to give you answers. We're going to give you what you, we're going to point out where the answer can be. But as a human, you've got to make that decision. Because if you're, if you're saying, hey, what, what territory should we uh, pump this $10 million investment in? Mm -hmm. Well, you've got to make that decision, but we can, we can guide you to uh, what you're going to need to make that decision. And, and I think that is what users are looking for because we don't want to replace humans. Uh, we don't believe in that. We believe that you want to make humans as efficient as they can be so that humans can leverage the, the the unique capabilities that they have that are very hard to simulate in
0: machines. Their backgrounds, mm-hmm. their personality, their exactly. wisdom, all that. That adaptivity, mm-hmm. you know, that, that empathy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating because... There's even stories of at Salesforce Einstein giving their mm-hmm. CEO answers about where we should, they, where they should invest money mm-hmm. or spend, or which division they should focus on when he asks it in the boardroom meetings. Mm. Interesting. And how does it know? Yeah. Like, how does it know what's right mm-hmm. for the company that's comprised of thousands of people? Mm-hmm. Salesforce
1: is doing very well, so it <laughs> you know, can't, can't be dead wrong. But it's, um, it, it, it is an. Uh, and I, I think a lot of those anecdotes, especially where machine learning is now, machine learning is has advanced uh, tremendously. But what most people don't realize about machine learning is that all these tools you're using there there there's a there's a human element there, mm-hmm. right? And and we sort of mask the human element. Uh, and some of it is aspirational to eliminate that human element. But there's a there's a human element there. And I think what since Chappie has done this, different is we're very upfront about we want to keep humans in the loop. Yeah, we don't want to create systems that eliminate humans because human intelligence is is what makes AI and machine learning useful. Right, right. Without it, you've just got uh, you've just got a processor that's that's processing information with no context or without any ability to make it meaningful. Yeah, and that's that's not that's not fun, right? No one wants that.
0: Mm-mm. Even on the everyday search, like Mm -hmm. with predictive search, right? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it's trying to make it a little bit more efficient because it knows that it it has an idea of what I might be looking for Mm -hmm. and this offering up a slew of suggestions. Is that now affecting my original intent, too? Or is it making it easier, right? There's that fine line, that tension that you were kind of talking about, about how much are we influencing the human
1: it's chicken. It's the, it's the chicken, chicken, chicken and the egg <laughs> argument, right? With with respect to um, whether the a machine's suggestion is actually um, creating intention. Yeah, you know, and it's fascinating to think about. Um, and, and I don't know because I don't know whether the chicken or the egg came first. So. That's right. <laughs> so, so I think, I think that'll, that'll be the the, the new philosophical, philosophical questions, questions that uh, that people ponder. It's like, does the search or the suggestion come first? Which which one is it? Right?
0: <laughs> well, Jeff, it's been a really interesting conversation. I'm so glad you're being a champion for this topic. And uh, when you go speak, and then the software you make, and the conversations you're having um, in your regular business, and I'm I'm sure the listeners are going to be glad we, we talked about this.
1: Well, it's been my pleasure uh, to, to be a guest and thank you so much for having me. So I look forward to continuing these conversations. Yeah, and, yeah let's stay in touch. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Take care.
0: Cool. Thanks.